0: You know, there are some times that I preach the Bible that uh, I personally learn and grow week after week uh, as I study. And uh, there are other times whenever I preach the Bible that uh, I get to share things that have have caused me to learn and grow in the past, um, and I bring them forward into the message and I present them. Uh, But there are those special times, and going through Romans has been one of those times for me. That it seems like that week after week as I study, I learn something new from God's Word, something that I've never really seen before, a truth that's never really penetrated my heart before. And uh, I love it whenever that happens. That obviously is something that happens in my life whenever I'm in my my personal quiet times all the time. I hope that happens in your life a lot. But this series uh, that we're about to end today entitled Sanctified, I really hope that it's been beneficial to you. I really pray that it has helped to accelerate your spiritual growth. Uh, I I really hope that there has been something that we have looked at in these messages, something that has been presented from God's Word that is really lodged in your heart and which you have really meditated upon and the Lord has used it. And so we're going to look at this final passage in Romans chapter 8 today that is kind of a transition point in the book of Romans. Next week I'm going be, to begin what will be my fourth series through the book of Romans entitled Missional Living. And the reason that I, the reason that I chose to, uh, to, to start in the latter portion of Romans when it, uh, to talk about this idea of living on mission uh, is because there is a significant transition point that we see in Romans chapter 8. It's kind of a summation of everything that we have read in Romans so far. And it's a, a series of rhetorical questions that really are more like shouts of victory. And I believe that they are a perfect lead-in for us to participate in the Lord's Supper today. So I want to ask you to stand with me as we read these verses. We're going to be reading in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through verses 39. Uh, I dare say that aside from Romans uh, Romans eight twenty-eight these might be some of the verses in the book of Romans that you probably have memorized a lot and have quoted a lot and have brought you great comfort uh, in times of trouble. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. The Bible says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, today we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, that you have given us great comfort through the things that you have given us through these scriptures today. We thank you, God, for the overwhelming power that has been given to us through the Spirit. Lord, a power to where which we can overcome sin and temptation in our life. A power which we can make it through suffering in life. A power through which, even though we don't understand how you're in control of this world and there's hard things that happen to us and we can't understand your purposes, God, we thank you that through that, that your love is constant. So, Father, today, I pray that you would encourage your people. I pray, God, that we would remember what you have done for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would use us for your glory. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So. I love this volley of rhetorical questions that is offered to the reader in uh, Romans chapter 8 in these these eight verses that we have read. Seven rhetorical questions that we read. These are not questions that are soliciting information. These are not questions that we're to ask in order to learn, per se. These are questions that are declarations of victory. These are questions that are conclusions based upon everything that has been stated in the Word of God in Romans chapter 1 all the way through Romans chapter 8. And think about everything that we have read and everything that has been preached and everything that has has been presented to us in these first eight chapters. Think about what the Bible says about what it means to be lost. And how we have been justified by God. How we are being sanctified by God. And all of the wonderful truths that we have been looking at in these first eight chapters. And the question that is asked, again, not a question for, for learning or for information that is soliciting someone to explain things, but a question that is rhetorical in nature. A question that says, what shall we say to all these things? These things are so marvelous. These things are so great. What shall we say to all of these things? What shall we say to this gospel that has been presented to us in the book of Romans? What shall we say about the fact that God has justified us, that He has declared us not guilty? What shall we say to the fact that we are being sanctified by God, that we are being made holy? What shall we say to the fact that there are things in this world that God has predestined for our glory and for his glory? What should we say to the fact that even whenever we are tempted that God is going to be with us? What should we say to the fact that even though we suffer and we suffer many things that God is still with us? What should should we say to the fact that suffering is used by God to save us and to sanctify us? What should we say? It's quite simple. If God is for us, Who can be against us? If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? What we see in God's Word in these verses and in so many other verses all throughout Scripture is that God's people are indomitable, that we cannot be defeated. It doesn't mean that we're going to have victory in every sphere of life. It doesn't mean that every time we want to land that job that we're going to get it. It doesn't mean that every time we go to the doctor we're going to receive a good report. It doesn't mean that in every situation we're going to get exactly what we want. That is not what the Bible teaches here. What the Bible does teach here is that there is a spiritual process that is happening and is taking place in our lives, and it will never be defeated. It means that there are processes in which God, or purposes rather, through processes that are taking place throughout history in which God is manifesting his will and nothing is going to thwart these things. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 33 verse 11, says the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart through all generations This means that the things that God wants to do and the plans that He has established, that they can't be stopped. And you and I are a part of those plans. You and I are on the road of sanctification. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. And one day God's going to take us into heaven and glorify us and to be with Him. And this means that not, not just God's purposes and God's plans are indomitable, but we are as well. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 16 verse 18 when talking about his church, his people and the confession that they make. He said that his church will be like a rock and it will move with such speed and such deliverance. it will it will take part in carrying out the plans of God and the purposes of heart to such an extent that the gates of hell will not prevail against it in other words Satan himself could not put up a barrier strong enough to stop the things that God wants to see happen in the world and to stop the things that God wants to see happen in your life they are undefeatable our God cannot be defeated and what he wants to do in your life Cannot be defeated. That's what we see in these verses, in this shout of victory. And what is true for all of God's people, God's church, on a corporate level, if you will, is also true for all of us in our personal life. Your personal spiritual life, your desire to be holy, your desire to be godly, cannot be stopped. Whenever the desire is in there and you are dead set on repenting of your sins and following God's ways, it is undefeatable in your life. No amount of temptation can stop it. No amount of suffering can thwart it. When you have a resolve through God's Spirit to love Him with your whole heart, it will happen, and nothing can derail that. God's work of victory in your life is certain Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says and I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ so I ask you why should how can we have such confidence how can we have such confidence that everything that God wants to do in our life everything that God wants to do with his church is undefeatable. How can we have such confidence? I want to draw your attention to Romans chapter 8, verse 32. There's a word in this verse, and I think I have it for the screen, that I underlined for you because it really popped out for me. It's the word spare. It says, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God God spared no expense to see people saved, sanctified, and glorified. God spared no expense. Now, I want you to think about things in your life that have been expensive to you. I want you to think about things that you have spent a lot of money on. I want you to think about things that you spent a lot of time on. I want you to think about things in your life that you spent a lot of emotional, relational energy in order to attain. I want you to think about maybe a marriage that you have built up over 30 or 40 years and all of the time and energy that you have put into it. I want you to think about maybe that retirement nest egg, if we want to get materialistic and all the things that you have worked on. You see, things that we spare no expense for, we protect. When we pour ourselves into something, whether it be in a financial way or in a relational way or in a spiritual way, we protect those things. God spared no expense in securing our salvation. He did not even spare his own son. And his son swept drops of blood in a moment of grief and said, Father, if this cup could pass from me, but not what I will, what you will, this cup did not pass. From Christ, God did not spare his only son, and he did it in order to secure our redemption. Do you think God is going to allow his purposes in the world and his purposes with his church and his purposes in your life to be defeated after he has spared no expense in order to secure your redemption? And this is why God says, He says that he will graciously give us all things. There's that phrase again, by the way. I talked about this last week uh, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It said, all things work together for good. I defined all things more specifically as all those bad things that happen to us. But here it's used differently. All things is used about all the spiritual blessings that God has prepared for us in Christ. The Bible speaks of these things as a certainty. Because God, he didn't spare his only son. And so he is going to spare nothing in how he blesses us. His people, God's people, are indomitable. And his prayers for us, I love this part, his prayers for us are un quenchable. Look at these rhetorical questions that are presented in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? By the way, when the Bible talks about God's elect, don't get caught up in that. It just means all of you who are in Christ. It means all of you who know Jesus. All of you who are actually born again. Who's going to bring a charge against us? Who's going to bring a charge against God's people? A rhetorical question. And he says, Who's going to condemn? Who's going to condemn us? Who's going to tell you that you are guilty? Who's going to tell you that you stand accused? Who's going to tell you that you have to face the consequences of your sin? Who has the spiritual authority to do that in your life? Who has the authority to charge you? Who has the authority to condemn you? The Bible gives us the answer. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, he is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, and he's at the right hand of God. He is the only one with the authority to charge you, to accuse you, and to condemn you. He is the only one with the authority to do that. But you know that he's not doing it. The Bible says that he's doing something different. The Bible says that he is our expert attorney. The Bible describes him as interceding for us, as if there is a courtroom around the throne of God and the accuser of the brethren is coming against us and we have somebody that is defending us. We have someone that is praying for us. Do you know even whenever you sin, Jesus is praying for you? Do you know that even whenever you feel lost, whenever you feel alone, even whenever you're hurting, when you're in pain, whenever Satan comes to you and he whispers into your ear and he says, you call yourself a Christian, a Christian doesn't do these types of things. Satan comes and whispers in your ear and says, you're not really fit to be in a relationship with God. Jesus is praying for you in those moments. Jesus isn't saying those things to you. You know, whenever you're suffering, whenever you're hurting, whenever you're going through something that's just really, really hard and painful, and the accuser comes into your ear and says, see, God has abandoned you. He doesn't really love you. The Bible says that Jesus is cheering for you, that he is praying for you. Who do you want praying for you? Think, think about that. We ask each other for prayer all the time. We come to each other and say, I'm going through something really hard. Pray for me. I have a sin in my life. I'm trying to overcome. Pray for me. I have a, a hurt or a pain or, or something or I've got a, 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 some kind of medical or something, some kind of need in my life. Pray for me. We, we do that all the time. Do you know Jesus is praying for you? He is seated at the right hand of God, and he's praying for you when you sin. He's praying for you. He's defending you. He is encouraging you before the Father. You know, sometimes, by the way, sometimes we do this to ourselves. Sometimes Satan doesn't need to do anything. We want to bring a charge against our own self. We want to condemn our own selves. We, we have this, this self-talk. That goes on inside of us. Sometimes it's not the enemy whispering in our ear. Sometimes we're talking to ourselves. We're charging ourselves. We're condemning ourselves. Listen, if you are in Christ, that's not what Jesus is doing for you. He is your expert attorney. He is interceding for you. He is praying for you before the throne of God. And the only person that can bring a charge against you, and the only person that can condemn you is the same person who died for you so that you could be saved. He's the only one that holds the keys of hell and death. He alone has the power to condemn, but he is in heaven interceding for you and praying for you even whenever you mess up, even whenever you sin. He is interceding for you. I was thinking about that this week, and I wondered, what is Jesus praying for me? What is he saying before the Father? And I think the Lord just led me to John chapter 17. I don't don't have this for the screen for you. But John chapter 17 just records some of the things that Jesus prayed for us. He says, Lord, that they may be one. He even says, Lord, that they may be perfectly one. If you ever wonder if it's God's will for you to go to church and unite with other Christians in worship and in fellowship, do you know Jesus prayed that for you? Jesus prayed that you would, he, he prayed that we would be one. He prayed that we would be together, that we would be a, a church body. You know Jesus also prayed for you to have joy in verse 13. He said, but now I'm coming to you. These things I speak to the world that they may have joy. My joy fulfilled in them. You know, in verse 16, he asked for you to have protection from the evil one. In verse 15, and verse 16, he said, keep them from the evil one. In verse 17, Jesus prayed for you to be sanctified. He said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your world, your your word is truth. In verse 24, he prayed that you would be in heaven with him. He said, Lord, it basically, to paraphrase, I, I can't wait for them to be with me where I am. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me before, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You know, when you think about What Jesus is praying for you in the midst of your problems, in the midst of your temptations, in the midst of all of your struggles in this life, when you really start thinking that way, that Jesus is praying for you, and you look at a model in John chapter 17, these 12 disciples were about to go through some really difficult, hard things. And I guarantee you, Jesus prayed for them in a way that they probably were not praying for themselves. And I believe if we want to, if, if, I believe that the key to answered prayers and the key to an explosive spiritual life is to know how Jesus is praying for us because then we can know how, what his will for us is. And then we begin to pray those things and we begin to see God's purposes and God's plans and his, his unstoppable plans manifested around us and in our own life, and we find ourselves with an opportunity to pray for it. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus loves you. He cares for you. Even whenever you mess up, he is still your great high priest. If you want your prayer life to really take off, try to discover what what do you feel like that Jesus is saying about you before the Father. I can tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying, Lord, I can't believe you, save that raggedy soul. You sure you still want him? You, you you sure you want to keep him? I mean, you think you made the right decision? He hadn't performed very well since you I mean, you gave him your holy spirit. And 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 look at him. He's just he's just not doing very well. Those are not the things that Jesus is saying about you before the Father. Those are the things that Satan and yourself want to believe that Jesus is saying before the Father. But those are not the things that Jesus is saying before the Father. We know that because we are inseparable from his love. His love is inseparable. Romans chapter 8 verse 35 through verse 39. Talk about how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The word separate, by the way, it means to divide or to pull apart obviously what it means to separate to, 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 to make two things come away from each other the Bible says that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of Christ so we know the prayers that he's praying for us we know that his will for us, his desire for us his attitude towards us is one of love you know I said something last week that I think is worthy of repeating and you'll probably hear me repeat it more and more And that was, I said last week that I think the most discouraging thing that I could say to you was that when good things happen in your life, your faith is strengthened. But when bad things happen in your life, your faith is destroyed. If that was the truth, that would be the most discouraging thing I can possibly imagine. That we have to figure out how to grow our faith... In the midst of an evil world where evil things and bad things and hard things destroy faith. That is not what we see in Scripture. That would be the most discouraging thing that I can imagine. That I have to have good in order for my, my faith to be strengthened, and I have to stay away from the bad because the bad causes my faith to be weak. That is a lie. The Bible teaches us that these bad things that happen to us in some type of way, these bad, horrible, terrible, difficult things that happen to us, actually serve to strengthen and increase our faith more than the good things. And I don't understand why it's that way. I don't understand why God made it that way, but I'm so glad that he did I'm so glad that he made it to where all of, the, all of the tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger as so, and sword, I, I'm glad that none of those things can destroy the love of Christ from happening in my heart. None of those things can prevent the spiritual processes of sanctification and justification and glorification from being mine in Christ. In fact, if anything, those things just serve to accelerate the spiritual processes in my life. And that's why we see in the middle of these verses here when the Bible says that we are more than conquerors because these things don't destroy us, that in some strange way according to the providence of God that they actually strengthen us. When have you felt the love of God strongest your life I bet the answer to that question would somehow be related to some major catastrophe some major hurt or suffering that has happened in you and just in your time of need God came through and you felt his love and you felt him with you and he gave you joy it is in that moment That even though you are not physically strong, and you may not be strong by any physical standard or any physical metric, you are becoming spiritually strong in that moment because you can experience the joy and the love of God that he has for you. I love that the Bible says that it's not that we just barely get by when bad things happen. It's not that we, well, I I made it through that pretty good. Not even, oh, this is hard, but I know know I'm going to win in the end. But rather, we are more than conquerors, and Christ's love makes the difference. His love for you never goes away. So as we finish this series, Sanctification, I wonder if there is something in your life that has been holding you back from it. I wonder if there's something in your life that God has identified to you. He said, hey, listen, this part of your life, this thing in your life, this this has kept you from walking in sanctification. It is holding you back. It's preventing you. It is blocking my love for you, and it needs to be dealt with. And I ask you at the, at the, at the, the middle of the service after we sang a couple of songs during our prayer time, I ask you to think about some things that maybe you would need to repent of And maybe you would need to pray about before we participate in the Lord's Supper together. And I'm going to give you an opportunity uh, to do that. I'm going to give you an opportunity uh, to come to this altar. I'm going to give you an opportunity to bow down and just pray and just give it over to the Lord. Maybe it's worry and anxiety. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's some other type of addiction. Maybe it's alcoholism. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's something good in your life that you've made a god in your life. It doesn't necessarily have to be sin. Maybe there's a good in your life that you have put above God. Maybe you say, you know what? I think I've kind of elevated my family above my relationship with Jesus. Maybe you might say today that my kids and all their activities and all their sports and all the things that they do, that's taken more of a priority in my life. Their extracurricular activities have taken more of a priority in my life than my relationship with Jesus and my bond with my church family. You see, it's interesting how our hearts can just be little idol factories. We just know how to make an idol out of anything. It can be something evil and sinful, or it can be something good that we turn into an idol. And so I just want to give you a moment. I just want to give you a couple of minutes. uh, If you would like to come to the altar and you would just like to pray and just pour out your heart to the Lord. Uh, Andy and um, our musicians are going to play just just softly, so just a, a minute or two. And if you want to come down and pray and just prepare your heart. To partake of the Lord's Supper then we want to give you an opportunity to do that so you come now if you feel led and if you're here today and if you don't know Jesus as Savior I just want to ask you I just want to ask you to call upon the name of Jesus you know all this that we've been talking about all this change all this sanctification it can't happen in your life unless you call upon Jesus and if you're saved, and the Bible says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. And so maybe that would be your prayer today. Maybe, maybe your prayer today is not necessarily coming to the altar and laying something down before him that's been hindering your sanctification. M- maybe your prayer today might be a prayer of salvation. And if so, you take that time now. You take that time to pray and to ask Jesus to save you.